I really fell in love with software, but particularly just like software as a service. I was like, this is really, really neat to sort of empower these businesses, particularly small businesses who don't necessarily have access to this type of tool. When they are able to adopt these tools and build these things, you know, you can just see their eyes light up. Being able to unlock the potential of these folks is important for them as a person, but it's also important for us as a society because we're able to tap into the collective knowledge of just more people. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, Grant sits down with Wade Foster, co-founder and CEO at Zapier. They begin with a dive into Wade's background and the story of founding Zapier while living in Columbia, Missouri after attending Missouri University. This is where Wade recalls falling in love with the idea of software as a service, bootstrapping the beta version of Zapier with no initial investment. They continue with the growth of Zapier and the lessons learned when establishing pricing and packaging models for software, prioritizing frictionless sales and customer-centric onboarding experiences. Both founders of entirely remote companies, Grant and Wade go on to share their insights and tips on optimizing communication and productivity in remote organizations. They also discuss how to scale remote camaraderie itself as a company grows, with Wade explaining how Zapier's action-oriented onboarding approach has helped them as a fully remote organization. Finally, the discussion turns to the category of low-code, no-code, and the accessibility it brings to everyday software users by empowering them to build full applications and mobile experiences with no engineering background at all. This episode is full of founders' journeys, insightful advice, and even some great tangential stories, too. Thanks to Wade for his time, and we really hope you enjoy. All right, Wade, thank you so much for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me, Grant. Cool. Let's dive right in. Like, Tell us a bit about your background. How did you get to founding Zapier? Yeah, I think the thing that set me on the path to founding Zapier was probably the financial crisis in 2008. So I was a uh, junior in college at that time. And, uh, you know, summer happened kind of, I think, springtime, something like that. And starting to go out, look for like summer jobs, internships, things like that. Ain't nobody hiring. And it didn't matter how good of a student you are. It just was, you know, difficult to sort of get a job. And that sort of was like a little bit of a wake up call for me to just go like, I, I've been kind of cruising up to that point in time, you know, just kind of doing my thing and started to ask like, well, what do I actually really want from, you know, a career, what from life and where do I want to spend my time? And that was kind of when I really started to fall in love with like this internet thing. Uh, you know, sort of found like AdSense and AdWords and like, all these people are making money on the internet, uh, things like that. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And you read the four hour work week and you were like, oh, I can sell t-shirts and yeah, stuff like that. Right. And I happened to find a, a little software company in uh, Columbia, Missouri. It was like five or six people and they wanted a, an intern 
that summer to help with marketing. And you know, I was I in school for industrial engineering and stuff, but I was like, hey, marketing has some like math and stuff associated with it. Like maybe that'd be fun. And, you know, sort of talked my way into that that gig. And it ended up being just a real eye-opener in terms of like what the industry looked like. Uh, you know, we started using tools like, you know, campaign monitor and Wufu and Basecamp and QuickBooks. And I, to see that these companies were able to build software, host it on the internet, and like anyone in the world could just sign up, pay them, never have to like see the person, talk to the person or anything. And it's just like, oh, great, I can send an email now, or like, I can manage a project now, or like, I can do all this stuff. It just sort of was like, wow, this is really cool that you're able to do this sort of stuff. And I really fell in love with software, but particularly just like software as a service. I was like, this is really, really neat to sort of empower these businesses, particularly small businesses, who don't necessarily have access to this type of tool. And, uh, you know, from there, I started learning like product development, trying to teach myself how to code and just sort of develop a lot of the basic skill sets that might help you start a business like that. What were you doing to teach yourself how to code? What were you using? I was just like Googling around, you know, like learn Python the hard way was like coming out around that time. There was like some Rails tutorial type stuff. So, uh, you know, just sort of like finding stuff on the internet, going through the tutorials, like trying to get used to, you know, the syntax and language and understand like some of the core concepts. And I wouldn't say that it was like something I took to super quickly. Like it was, it was a stretch for me. Mm. And in doing so, I reached out to a sort of colleague, or I guess like an acquaintance at the time in town who I knew was like one of the best sort of engineers around, but I'd known him through the music school at Mizzou. I said, Hey man, like, I know you built a lot of sites and stuff. Like, can we hang out? Like, can you teach me some stuff? Like, what do you think? He's like, sure. Yeah, I'd love to. By the way, we need a saxophone player for our band. Would you be down for doing that? And so that kind of ended up being like the sort of friendly handshake deal is like, you teach me this stuff and I'll play in your band. That's amazing. Yeah. It just sort of led to like a really good friendship. And over the next sort of 12 months or so, we were just sort of constantly pitching each other like ideas of businesses to start, things that we could get into while, you know, going and playing these gigs and practicing around and all these sort of things. And uh, one day he, you know, we were both working at this company together for a day job. And one day he messaged me and said, hey, what do you think about this idea? Like we could make it a lot easier for folks to integrate the tools that they use at work. You know, I think like Wufu and MailChimp and Zendesk and QuickBooks, like some of the stuff that was starting to get significant traction. This would have been circa 2011. Stripe had just launched, Twilio had just launched. Uh, sort of API first starting to become a thing. It's like, we could make this accessible to your everyday knowledge worker. And for somebody who was not a very good engineer and at work, like struggling to use things like the Marketo API, I was like, yes, this needs to exist. Because if this existed, I wouldn't have to be going through all this headache of learning this stuff. And it's it's hard. It's taking longer than I wish it would. Sure. And so it just really, really resonated with me. And so he and I, plus Mike, who became our third co-founder, uh, went and built the original prototype for it at a startup weekend and just, you know, really had fun working on it. You know, we weren't really thinking of it as like a business at that point in time. It was more just, this would be fun to work on and like, just see what happens. And so was this like a, an official startup weekend, like one of the events that they would co-host around the, yeah, it was one of the official ones. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So Amazing. we would do it there. And then, uh, 
after the weekend was up, you know, we sort of got together on Monday and we're like, well, do you want to keep working on this? And all of us were like, yes, fun. Like, let's keep working on it. And, you know, Brian and I kept our day jobs. Mike was still in school. So he kept at school. So nights and weekends, we would just keep building, make whatever the sort of next obvious most progress looked like. And just in the course of working on this, we really liked it. We got more and more serious and we just kept doing it. And so, you know, 10 years later, we just never stopped. And when did you go full-time on it? I went full-time about three months in. Because I was like the least skilled engineer of the three of us, <laughs> I spent more time with customers because um, mm-hmm. that was one of the better ways that I could add value was like really trying to find them, figure out who the right people to be using the software might be. I remember we had Olark on the site, which is like live chat at the time. Yeah, sure. You know, about three months in, we'd started to get more traffic. People would show up, they'd start chatting with me. And uh, during the J job, like I'd find myself like paying attention to the Olark chat a little bit more than the day job. <laughs> and um, we call that daylighting when you when you work for your, uh, a company and then you are doing another job at the same time. So it's daylighting. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, my boss was like super, super gracious about it. Um, but I do remember you know, at one point in time, he called me. He's like, Wade, you know, you're going to have to make a choice. Like you really it seems like you're having a lot of fun with the Zapier thing. But also, like, we need you to, like, get this job done, too, right? So I said, you know, you're, you're right. Like, I, I think I should just go full time. And so we sort of, he kind of, it was really actually super helpful because I was 24 at the time. Like, it was scary to go full time on a startup. Like, I didn't know a lot of entrepreneurs. We're in the, I'm in the Midwest. This is not a common career path for folks. And so having someone like him who'd started a company, had a lot of success, go, give it a go. Like, your heart set on it. I think you got something. See what you can. It was just enough of a like confidence boost to say like, all right, I'm going to do it. Did you have revenue at that time or like? Not really. So we were doing an odd beta. So the way we arranged our beta, I've never seen anyone do it the same way that we did. So maybe that means it was bad, but it worked for us. <laughs> we did a, a closed beta that was paid. And so you would pay a hundred bucks and that got you access to the beta. It was a one-time fee. And the way we, what we said was you get access for as long as the beta exists. The beta might end tomorrow. It might end six months from now. It might end 12 months from now. We don't really know. Like we are just going to keep working on this until we feel like it's good enough. And that's when it'll launch. And at that point in time, it'll turn into a subscription. So if you're cool with that, like jump on board. And it started at a hundred bucks. Over time, we shifted it, I think down to like five bucks and then maybe even a dollar at some point in time too. The point wasn't the money. The point was just, yeah. are you serious? Like, do you care? Because we didn't want to waste time with folks that were just kind of kicking the tires on this thing. We wanted to know that it was an important enough problem that you would at least get the credit card out. Uh, and so that was the kind of revenue we were making. So it was, you know, I don't know, yeah. maybe a few hundred bucks a month or something like that. But we're in central Missouri. Cost of living is nothing. And I was married at the time. So my wife's a teacher. And we had sort of worked it out where it was like, okay, if we eat rice and beans every day, like <laughs> we should be okay. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Your teacher wife is supporting you. That's like the greatest, you know, people talk about a teacher salary being tough to live on. If you're a teacher, imagine now supporting a startup founder plus yourself. That's great. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we were in a good position. Uh, you know, we had some advantages going for us. Uh, you know, we'd sort of paid off the student loans and we didn't have much to begin with. And, 
we're fresh out of college. So we hadn't had like a lot of, you know, lifestyle inflation creep sort of sure. sift in yet. So we were used, you know, the rice and beans thing was just sort of like, yeah, you know, like we can keep doing this for a little bit. So it wasn't because that was kind of the lifestyle we're accustomed to. It didn't mean that we had to sort of like make this really hard choice to limit our spending. It was just didn't feel like a big sacrifice. Yeah. It was more like, okay, we should dial it back just a little, Um, you know, but dial it back five degrees or 10 degrees and like, we'll probably be okay. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I mean, at that time where you, you know, you were going to a startup weekend and so you had like been paying attention to the startup ecosystem, but were you like following kind of how some of these other businesses were being built? Were you like always kind of an interested entrepreneur? You know, you mentioned that you had been pretty excited about the internet, quote unquote, yeah. since 2008 in terms of businesses and SaaS. But like, were you a student of it? Were you like, how were you learning? Yeah, I really had started to become it. You know, that exposure, that internship I had was where I really started getting into it. I remember Steve Blank's book, Four Steps to Epiphany. I read that. Sure. Lean Startup was released around then. So, you know, I really got into that and read like, Basecamp's book, the Getting Real book. So yeah, I was just starting to soak up like a lot of the early stage startup type advice things on like how do you get a product off the ground, how do you get the product market fit, how do you validate an idea, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I was certainly digesting a lot of that information, which was useful mm-hmm. up to a point. You know, then at a certain point, you kind of just gotta try and do and feel and experience, and you start to realize like how much of that stuff is actually helpful versus how much of it is sort of like. I mean, great if it works for you, but it worked for them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe not for you. So uh, I, I do think that combo of, you know, sort of ferocious reader mixed with ferocious doer is mm-hmm. really powerful. But if you sort of have one or the other, like eh, you're, you're probably missing part of the equation. Yeah. Sort of survey the landscape of, of knowledge and then like try to apply as much of it as you can. And then, I mean, I still remember the moment when I founded my first company Someone described it as like staring into the abyss, like chewing glass. Like I had like that pit in my stomach. Did you feel a similar sense of like impending doom? Like, oh, I don't really know what's on the other side of this when I quit my job and I don't have a salary or or did you feel pretty comfortable? You know, I think it was not like staring at the abyss. I think it was more just like, well, now what do I do? Mm. You know, especially as someone who mostly started Zapier, like pretty close to right out of school. I've been out of school for like a year. School is you show up, you listen, you get a syllabus, you get some tasks, you do the task, you rinse, wash and repeat that. And so I've been conditioned to do that for, you know, 16, 17 years. And so then when you start your own thing, there's no task list. There's no like, oh, this is how you get an A on this assignment. That doesn't really exist. And so I think that to me was more the like, it was both scary, but also freeing at the same time. It was like, sure. okay, I just do something and maybe that works or maybe it doesn't. And that's definitely a lot of fun and exhilarating, but also pretty terrifying because you have no clue, like, especially early on, it's really hard to get signals. So you don't really know if you're actually spending time in the best way possible. And so you sort of started this side project, startup weekend, then you start to go full time. Are you the only one full time on it or are any of your other you know, co-founders full-time yet. Yeah, I was the first to full-time and they followed suit um, you know, a few months later. Yeah. And this is all like bootstrap. There's no investment. There's no like, nope. this is just, we'll figure it out and try to make a little money along the way and charge folks. 100%. You know, we did put a little bit of thinking to it. So I think each of us put, you know, a few thousand dollars in a bank account and we said, okay, this is like, this is what we get. I think it added up to $10,000 total. So that was like our 
seed funding that each of us put in like a little portion of that. And that's what we operated out of. So we paid, you know, our servers out of that. We paid for some software out of that. And then mostly tried not to spend the money. <laughs> and you were, and I'm guessing at this time, probably built on AWS and some of the other kind of primitives that were existing? No, not at the time. Uh, I think the first service we used was actually Linode okay. back in the day. Yeah. And then moved to AWS pretty soon after, I want to say, you know, that happened maybe within a year. Great. So like, but you find some cloud hosted, you know, servers you start using and talk about real quick, the three different co-founders, like each of your roles and kind of how you saw those particularly early on. Yeah, we were fortunate that we had, I think, two advantages. One is all three of us were just generally smart at a lot of different things. So each of us could do each other's role in a like pinch, hmm. but we also had complementary pieces. Um, so in that case, you know, Brian, uh, definitely, you know, sort of your classic, like engineer architect type role. And so he was really thinking about, you know, what is the database and the architecture and sort of like the underlying thing that runs apps look like, uh, so spending a lot of time on that. Mike, very much a like front end product design sort of thinker. And so very much able to understand like, what's the user experience got to look like? And how do we make the browser do that thing? And then I was, you know, very much focused on the go to market, you know, how do we find customers? How do we get them in? Um, How do we figure out if they like what we're building or not? But, you know, each of us would oftentimes do things that were in the other person's domain. And so that made it just a really useful partnerships, because, you know, we could go to each other for advice and be like, hey, I'm struggling with x, like, what, how do you think I should be thinking about this? Like, what, what might you do in this situation? And, uh, it made it just a lot more fun and less lonely experience to know that like you're kind of just doing it with, you know, a group of people together. Sure. It's just a, I don't know that Zapier would have been what it is today uh, if any one of us was sort of not at the table. Yeah. And when you were first building that kind of getting, the, were you getting together in person? Were you just all working from home? What was, how was it? Yeah, it was a mix, you know, it's a side project. So there is no like office or anything like that. And so, but then when you all went full time that, then you put that 10 K in, did you start to go to a co-working space or what was the, no, I mean, even still, like we were, you know, working from home, uh, we would occasionally go to, you know, the day job, uh, the boss we had there, again, very supportive. He would mm. let us stay late at night and sort of use the office um, from time to time. So we would do that on occasion. Sure, use the whiteboards and stuff. Yeah, yeah and so that was great. Um, the only time that we sort of all worked at the same place was when uh, we got accepted into YC in summer 2012. We all moved to California and rented a, an apartment there. And we lived and worked out of that apartment together that summer. So that was the only time in the entire company's history where the company sort of had a single location where everyone was working. Oh, got it. So, uh, and so that was about a year after you started the company that you went to Y Combinator? Yeah, like eight months. We started in September, 2011, and that would have been in May of 2012. And that's still pretty early Y Combinator. So it was like probably batches of 30 or something at that point. Mm, Our batch was like 80. Oh, okay, so maybe one of the first bigger batches. Yeah, it was starting to scale up uh, at that time. Um, you know, we had, uh, you know, like Coinbase was in our batch and Instacart was in our batch. Oh, cool. um, so it was, you know, it was starting to get to where there was uh, quite a number of companies being funded. And what did Zapier look like at that point? Like, what, what was the product? Had you exited beta? So one of the very first things we did when we got into YC was, you know, we we're like, hey, we got this beta. It's feeling pretty good. I'm not sure, like, 
if it's ready for launch or not. And they were like, launch. Uh, and so basically the first thing we did as part of YC was actually take the beta tag off of it, uh, implement like a real pricing model, and then just start accepting anyone that wanted to use the product and start like growing and monetizing in that way. That was literally like the day one ish task of YC. And at the beginning, the product, the pricing models, was it initially focused on teams and individuals or is it first initially for just kind of just individuals or how, how did you think about the user? Like who, who did you imagine was going to use it and how did you structure the pricing? You know, <laughs> I don't know that we were very rigorous in this area, to be honest. Mm. Uh, I think we had this sense that, you know, a lot of these small companies, these people that were using things like MailChimp and Basecamp and Wufu and Zendesk and all these other tools needed something like this. So our like the lowest common denominator in terms of who the user was was well the people that use that stuff need Zapier yeah because they need to integrate that stuff with the other stuff that they use and so we just sort of didn't do any like broader understanding of like oh what what job types do they have what use cases do they need like are they in big companies or small companies we didn't really have much of a hypothesis or even an understanding of what that looked like. And then in terms of pricing, we were even more naive. Pricing was, I mean, because none of us have run a company before, we were basically operating off of like these internet blog posts. So each of us had like gone and read some separate posts. And I remember one night we actually, before we launched, kind of got into a bit of an argument about of it where I don't even remember who was arguing what stance, but the types of arguments were, I think there should be four plans. And the other person was like, no, three is better than four. We should do three. And it's like, well, no, I read this post. Four is definitely better. And it's like, okay, well, let's set that aside. Uh, it should actually end in a nine because ending a nine is better than that. No, no, no. It signals more value if it ends in a zero. So we got to end in a zero. So these are the types of like debates that we're getting into. Yeah. You know, we're not making any headway. We're just sort of like debating, like, I read this thing and I think this thing is better than the thing that you read yeah. on the internet. At some point in time, and I don't even remember who, one of us like goes, this is stupid. None of us know anything. And it sort of just ended up being like, well, if none of us know anything, let's just have fun with this. And so the first pricing model we launched was based on the Fibonacci sequence. So we launched a plan that was $11, a $23 plan, and a $58 plan. Because we had this whole zap thing going on, we named them uh, amps, ohms, and volts. Uh, so as you can tell, we're just like a bunch of giant nerds uh, is what this company is founded by. And uh, the price is 11 23 58 obviously super weird. Like you would never see that on any SaaS plan these days. But they're like in the ballpark yeah. of what a lot of these companies were charging at the time, you know, when you went to go yeah. buy a plan from Bluefoo or from MailChimp or from these things, it's sort of like, yeah, that's kind of what people pay for that kind of software. And so we sort of just like, like, well, it sort of fits the model of what people pay for this stuff. And it turned out it worked. You know, people paid us $11, $23.58, you know, and for a very long time, I don't think we actually have anyone on those plans anymore, but for a very long time, even well after we changed that pricing plan, we had folks from the very early days that we're still on those plan types. And were those designed around like a single user or multiple users? Like what was the sort of... There was no concept of a multi-user at the time. Okay. It was a single user thing. You sign up and use Zapier for yourself. And then like people probably shared a password if they needed somebody else. Shared passwords if they needed to. Yep. And you're thinking about this as like, to your point, the people that use these other products will need to use this. 
you're obviously thinking about individuals. You're not really thinking about companies. They might work at a company. They're going to expense this, but you're not really thinking about it like, oh, this is how they you know operate their team and this is what they do. So, what else did you learn at Y Combinator? Like, you know, that was probably a pretty formative experience. And then, sort of, you know, what's the next progression in the company? Yeah, I mean, YC is great. Uh, in fact, you can learn pretty much everything we learned by going and watching the startup school videos on YouTube. They literally give it all away for free. Mm. And so there's nothing like secret that they hold back where it's like, oh, if you get in the batch, like we have the extra, you know, final bit of information that unlocks it all for you. It's just not like that. <laughs> it's all out there. Being part of a batch, though, I think there is some like social benefits in terms of like, hey, everyone else around you is like, ambitious and pushing hard. And there's kind of like a friendly competition around just like, hey, who can really get to that next level quickest? And so that's good. And then I think the focus was really important for us. You know, we moved from Missouri. And so it's the three of us in California, we didn't have any friends or other activities to do. And so for three months, we did Zapier pretty much nights, weekends, whatever. And I think that just sort of, you just make a lot of progress when you put that kind of effort into it. And, you know, that's certainly not sustainable over the long haul. I would not recommend people do that forever, but for a three month time period at the beginning of a company, it definitely acts as a a bit of a like jet fuel to like really understand, is this going to work or not? And so I think that was like one of the big benefits that we got out of being in YC. And then you had a second question. Yeah. And then, you know, sort of what was the next stage of the company, right? When did you sort of realize, oh, like there's a real business here. You know, I know you raised a little bit of money, you know, at the end of YC, like what kind of kept it propelling and moving? Because like thus far, it doesn't seem like you're really on to that much. It doesn't seem like you're making that much money. It doesn't seem like this, you know, grand vision for, you know, oh, the future of work and, you know, no code applications and everything else. It feels like a little bit like we wanted to build this thing. And so we did. And then it's like, we were cheap. So we didn't need a lot of money. So like, you know, when did it sort of kind (laughs) of, get a little bit more real. Yeah. You know, it's funny, like that stuff that became more real, I guess the sort of more public acknowledgement of it being real didn't come from much, much, much later. Mm. Yeah. I think for us, the next stage was, well, let's figure out how do we grow this thing? You know, we've launched now, we have some pricing. So like we have a product, we have some users that seem to like it and some that really seem to love it. It's not that many, but it's some. So like, what does it take to really get it to the next level? And, um, you know, we had a few sort of growth strategies that were working. And the real sort of bottleneck for us was you couldn't really integrate that many apps. Like we had sort of bootstrapped, like brute force, been building these ourselves. Um, So this was like, I think the most common task that the three of us would work on, because it was something that like all three of us could do. And so we'd be like, what's the next app that we're going to integrate? And so we'd have lists of you know, apps and, you know, we try and get some feedback around like which ones seem more popular than the other ones. Uh, and then eventually we'd sort of just make a call and integrate the next one. And so we're adding these one by one ourselves. And that's a bit of a slow process. And like, we are physically the bottleneck on this thing. And so we started to ask ourselves like, well, what would it mean to go faster in terms of integrations, getting more apps on the platform? And I think it was Brian sort of made the suggestion like, well, what if we have a, a platform where other people can can build integrations into Zapier? And, you know, I think that's like a common sort of idea or suggestion for any early stage SaaS company is like, let's launch an API and try to get others to build apps on it. And so sometimes that works, more, more times it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So we didn't really know, well, should we actually do this? Like we wanted to make as much progress as possible before demo day. And 
it wasn't clear that building this developer ecosystem would actually lead to more progress short term, it might have been better to just sort of brute force keep doing these things. Because at least we know the apps would get added. We might build a dev platform and nobody cares to actually do the work. Sure. But ultimately, you know, we had sort of two things that said, let's actually try and do this dev platform. One was we had um, Aaron the Levy, the CEO over at Box, and emailed us and was like, hey, why is Box not on Zapier? And the answer was like pretty simple. It was like, well, we're three people trying to get to as many as we can and we just haven't got to it yet. Of course, Box should be on Zapier. Like it doesn't make any sense that it wouldn't be other than that. Was Dropbox on Zapier? Dropbox was on Zapier. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> that, that's why it was that might have played a part. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, the fact that he was emailing, we thought, well, maybe if he cares enough to email, he might assign an engineer to do a little work. Maybe. Like that was sort of just the guess. And then the second thing was we were willing to place the bet because we felt like long-term, if this worked out, the upside was so big mm-hmm. compared to continuing to do it in a brute force way. So like we should at least try and see if we could make it work. And so Brian built a prototype of that in, you know, I think like two weeks or something ridiculous. And um, it worked um, like, surprisingly. Uh, and, you know, we launched with the developer platform with, I think, 12 or 13 different partners that had built on Zapier just right out the gate, and including some pretty successful companies to this day. Like HubSpot was one of the first people mm. to build on our developer platform. Active Campaign had built on our developer platform. Gravity Forms, which is like an enormously popular WordPress plugin, had mm. built on that. So the, in the first 13, like there were some folks that grew into being very sizable and successful companies. And then over the years, that developer platform just became like a continuous source of growth for us because every new app on Zapier meant a whole new user base that could come and connect to all these other things. And that created just this virtuous cycle of more apps meant more users and more users meant more apps and uh, so on and so forth. And that's what started to get the growth engine moving yeah, and start to put us a little bit more on the map. Is that sort of where, because I mean, the other, other thing I see with Zapier is sort of like organic search results seem to be probably a pretty strong driver of traffic and probably new customer acquisition based on just like from the outside in. Are a lot of those sort of these like Zaps created and like integrations created in the developer platform? Is that sort of what enables that to happen? Yeah, I mean, it all stems from that, right? You know, a new app comes onto the platform and that's more landing pages and more templates and more links that can come in from the partners often saying like, hey, check out our Zapier integration. And so, you know, each app basically lights up a whole new series of, you know, pages that rank and search that get linked to, that get emails that go to them, uh, so on and so forth. And uh, yeah, it just becomes like the, a new funnel for us. You know, and then you you did raise a little bit of money sort of at the end of the YC experience as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did a, a million and change. And that's the only funding you've raised to date, right? Yep. And so uh, still slowly spending that. <laughs> <laughs> slowly uh, spending that, yep. Yeah. We treated that very much like the last money that we would ever get. Uh, you know, we definitely did burn money in basically the year after that, mm-hmm. but never much. You know, I paid pretty close attention to the cash flow statement every single month and wanted to understand where money was going, where it was coming in. And I think the, and this is going to sound so quaint compared to 
how most companies operate. But I think the most we burnt in a single month was something like $20,000 at some point in time. But within a year, we had sort of gotten to like a profitable level. And we, I don't know, we just liked growing that way better, I think. Yeah, I mean, and that's realistically in this kind of business, a function of headcount, right? So it seems like, you know, you probably waited a while to hire. Have you hired kind of, you know, was it always US based or was it sort of how, how did you think about growing the team and growing capacity? Yeah, it definitely started US based. Uh, and then, you know, I think around 10 or 12, we hired someone in the UK and then hired someone in Thailand and started to introduce some more geos outside the United States. Headcount, you know, in the early days, one of the ways we sort of made sure to keep spending in check was we had this philosophy of don't hire till it hurts. Mm. And that was beneficial for a few reasons. One, it was beneficial because it made sure that um, spending didn't get out of control. It was also beneficial because, two, it makes sure that we really understand the jobs before actually hiring folks into it. And so for an early stage company, when we bring that person on board, we know they have a job to do. They're not going to just be sitting there like twiddling their thumbs, trying to figure things out and figure out how to be productive and helpful. Like we very much have a well-scoped and defined job for them. Mm-hmm. And three, it meant that in the founding team, we really understood how the business worked because we did every little piece of it. And so even to this day, that has immense advantages because there's just so many pieces of Zapier that we just we understand it because we built it, period. And that is very, very helpful for us. So, I mean, that philosophy... I mean, eventually it stopped working because we started growing so fast that like if we waited that long, the pain was just always there and it was torture. But for the first, you know, I mean, shoot, we probably had that philosophy around for five years. So for five years, we kind of operate in that capacity. And, you know, at this point, you've raised a little bit of money, you're spending, you're hiring slowly, user base is still growing, like more integrations are growing. So you're, I mean, are you seeing hockey stick growth? Are you seeing sort of like consistent and steady growth? Like what's it look like inside the company? Yeah. I mean, we've got very consistent like growth rates that were, you know, pretty attractive, you know, the first three years, like tripling, you know, revenues. And then, you know, as the base started to build up, started to be more like doubling. Yeah. And so, you know, the revenue is growing sizably. We're probably doubling headcount year over year, give or take up to maybe about 150 people or so. So, you know, we're kind of just slowly methodically growing this thing and definitely for quite a long time, very under the radar, like because we weren't raising money because Mm. we weren't like super flashy, like press wasn't a big part of our story. You know, we're just sort of going about like this very kind of unsexy problem of like integrating and automating like these workflows between all this different stuff that I think we just kind of flew under the radar for a lot of folks. I mean, when did it really start to, I mean, now it's a pretty well-respected company. You've been running it for a while. You know, I mean, obviously some of the things you've done around remote have been uh, somewhat well-timed or at least like prescient in terms of, you know, being remote first and and sort of seeing now that be such a trend. Mm -hmm. When do you feel like the world started to really pay attention? Yeah, I think somewhere around like 2017, 2018, it started to seem like there was like an emergent space around this. It was becoming a little more trendy. Mm. You know, I think the no code term got coined around then. Certainly started to see more remote first companies, you know, GitLab had started to do their thing and Vision was doing their thing, Automatic was doing their thing. And so, you know, the, the remote story, the no code story started to emerge. And 
you know, I think folks were just picking up on the fact that like, we're hiring a lot more folks and you can look on LinkedIn. So it's just like the folks in the know could see that like Zapier was being successful. And, you know, you went and would talk to any of the partners that we had and Zapier was like a very critical partner for them because we're integrating all this stuff and they could see in their own user base that a ton of their users are using this product and benefiting from it. And so I think around then it just sort of, you know, a few factors just meant that like we weren't as under the radar as, as we used to be. And during that time, I mean, you just continue to build a strong business that I think people always somewhat respected the fact that you were like, yeah, we don't, we're not raising money. We're kind of continuing to grow this. Was there ever like some concern that somebody would come out and raise huge amounts of money and try to blow you out of the water? Or was it just kind of like, yeah, we've got the flywheel going. We, we feel good about this. Yeah, we were pretty convinced that like we had the flywheel going strong enough, um, particularly on that developer platform, that network ecosystem, where it just was going to be really difficult for anyone who was trying to copy us to replicate our playbook straight away. And money wasn't likely going to be the thing that allowed them to be successful. They needed to have something other than money on their side. Because we'd seen like a lot of people who had some money try and just not be able to replicate it. And then we'd seen bigger tech companies build like Zapier-esque things and not really have the same success that we had. And so it just sort of seemed like money wasn't the like limiting factor in this equation for us. There was other things that we really needed to focus on and make sure that we continued to do a really good job or just get better at. And and that was what was the, the more key thing. And, you know, raising money takes time. Managing investors takes time. Yeah. And all of that would have been time that I would have been spending or, you know, Brian and Mike had to have spent. And we just sort of felt like that time would have been better invested in our customers and, and making their lives better. And so that was kind of the, the calculus that we were making. Yeah, I love that. Let's zoom in a little bit on the partner program and sort of like how that developed and what that did, because it, it feels like, I mean, you know, within the enterprise ready sort of concept, right? Integration is such a core feature for most SaaS companies, most enterprise software companies, because I think when people initially think about building their product, they don't think about the fact that like they are not the source of truth, like, and they are part of a whole workflow, and they need to sort of integrate with different tools in order to really become part of an enterprise, you know, like process or just any company's processes. And so, this partner program that you launched, like, you know, when did that start? How's it worked? You know, it seems like. It's sort of a, a coupled on top of the developer program. Like, you know, mm -hmm. can you kind of describe it and what it does? Yeah. I mean, the first incarnation of it was when we launched the developer platform in 2012. And, you know, it was basically taking these folks who were building on Zapier and then just figuring out, like, how can we go to market together better? And, you know, the things that we were just asking ourselves is, hey, you all have a set of users that would benefit from Zapier. And we might have a set of users that would benefit from working with you. So is there sort of like just some mutually beneficial co-marketing we could do around this stuff? And we sort of try to keep it super lightweight and really easy to participate in versus trying to do these like really complicated BD deals and like getting legal contracts and stuff involved because mm. that kind of stuff just never really worked. It just slowed things down. And the impact didn't really change. In fact, it, it's almost like an anti-pattern. As soon as we see that, we're just like, I just bet the impact is not going to be that big because you're not sort of playing for upside. And so through that, we started to build a little bit of a mental model about what worked really well for both parties, for us for and for the partner. And so we started to know, 
you know, oh, here's what an email does. Here's what like onboarding emails do. Here's what blog posts do. Here's what landing pages do. Here's what tweets do. Here's what webinars do. Here's what, you know, these types of things. So we tried just a whole bunch of different of these things and we, we did them with different partners. And so over time, we watched and paid attention to the users that were coming through all these different channels. And we, we knew what would really drive successful usage at the end of the day. Mm. And so we really tried to orient the partner program around creating successful customers and successful users for everybody involved. And that I think is really what made our partner program successful. And it took a while to get there because, you know, a lot of times the interest is more about having splash and like, you know, creating some buzz around it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes splash and buzz correlates with long-term success, but oftentimes it doesn't. And so we had to figure out what are the things that really drive that. And then we had to build the trust with folks and actually do it enough times that we could convince people, hey, there's a better way to run these programs and be successful. And, you know, today what that looks like is when you launch with us, we have a whole playbook around this. Mm -hmm. And we're like, hey, you know, if you really want to have a kick butt launch with Zapier, like here's the list of stuff that like you should do. And here's the list of stuff we should do. And this is what's going to make sure that this is a, a really fruitful thing. So what it boils down to is just sort of starting with some hypotheses and then just kind of like over time, iterating our way through it to get to something that is like based on real data and real evidence that makes an awesome partnership over time. Yeah, I mean, and those partners are basically like other SaaS companies, right? I mean, that's yep. sort of the the bread and butter there. And oftentimes targeted at both individuals and businesses sort of in that same mix. You know, and then I, I guess the other, other thing to describe is like, just to make sure I'm kind of have it correctly, these partners integrate their APIs, their platform, their tooling, and then zaps are created by the end users, which like kind of link several of those together. And then those people publish the zaps and zaps can be reused by other folks as well. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, mm -hmm. great. And so the partner program, you know, like, I guess like Box became a partner when you launched the developer platform and these other companies would sort of do the work themselves to actually maintain the quality of the of the integrations and manage the API as it moved along? Yep. And, and you know, we would certainly work with them to like support that. You know, that was the other thing that we could do was not just improve the marketing around these partnerships, but actually improve the quality of the partnership as well too, the quality of the product experience because we could see oh, these types of actions and triggers are getting like traction amongst the users. So maybe try this. Or, hey, the way you have your API implemented means your authentication schemes aren't working as good as they could. So maybe try this. And the nice thing about that is because we see across so many different services, we can be a really useful feedback mechanism to our partners and around just more general things. It's like, hey, yeah, some of this is self-serving because if you do this, the Zapier integration is better. But also you have integrations with other vendors as well. And so mm. we can tell you that if you do this, it's not just going to be Zapier that's going to benefit. It's going to be all these folks that are going to benefit. And we actually have, we can actually show up with the data that supports that. Yeah, that's cool. You know, and one of the things, you know, you kind of mentioned to me before we started is the enterprise sort of adoption, right? So oftentimes, you know, we talk about how companies actually start to really feel enterprises adopting you. So one, I mean, you mentioned the number of the Fortune 100 or 500 is, is pretty high. And then talk about kind of those first big companies that started to come to you and sort of how you interacted with them and how they were using the product and the feedback that they were giving you. Yeah. You know, 
Tapir very much started in this sort of like bottoms up, like marketing driven sales motion. And yeah, that's still very much as our bread and butter today. And so it would be these individuals inside of these organizations, uh, big and small, you know, mostly small, but uh, to your point, you know, 70% of the Fortune 500 is using Zapier today in some capacity. And they would sign up, go through the trial, you know, and start setting up Zaps. And if they had questions, they would email support and, you know, our support team would be there to answer them. And so that was like the experience that was created is fairly simple, fairly straightforward. The first place we started seeing friction then is around a lot of the classic areas that enterprise want more of. It's purchasing. Like we want to purchase in a different way. Like Mm -hmm. this credit card thing is not exactly like we don't really have a mode for that. Or, hey, can you answer questions around, um, you know, these sort of common security needs or uh, privacy needs, data privacy needs? And so those were probably like the two most common things that started to emerge. And then later on, you started to hear more feature-driven things. You know, mm-hmm. hey, can I better control over which apps people are using or not using? And, th- and this stuff started to show up after the launch of our team's product, um, which didn't happen until, I think, 2017, I want to say. Okay. Uh, and so when that was launched, you started to see, okay, this product is good, but I want to have these types of features that gives me better controlled provisioning or better you know, insights into how others are using the product, things like that. So that's where it started. You know, we still maintained a fairly frictionless sales process. And we've been fairly, I guess, open with these organizations about like, hey, this is what Zapier can provide you. And this is what we can't provide you. And, you know, if you're looking for something more than that, you can go find that elsewhere. But you have to realize that comes at a cost. You know, Zapier's price points blow anyone else's out of the water. And so, you know, if that's what's important to you, you can go get it, but you're going to pay 10 or 100x times more for that and maybe also not get as good of a product. And as a result, you know, nine times out of 10, folks are like, yeah, I'm just use Zapier. Like that's, it's better. Uh, and so I'm just going to keep doing it. Uh, and so that's kind of what those early signals have been like. And then, you know, just slowly over time, as those folks make up more and more of our, our user base, we're figuring out, okay, how can we actually meet them where they're at and do a better job of providing a frictionless buying experience or frictionless onboarding experiences that don't require some of the like more traditional top-down enterprise heaven sales motions, but still enable these enterprises to get their questions answered and to get their needs met in the way that is more familiar to them. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. So it sounds like, I mean, number one, I think there's a very big opportunity in that in terms of taking this deeper and deeper into enterprise accounts and helping them realize, you know, they're doing this in all sorts of different ways today. And and sometimes systems just aren't integrated and things are just very manual. So the idea that you can really automate a lot of those processes and you have so much experience in doing this for years, I think is clear. And then the Teams product, was that the first time where it was like, you didn't have to share a username and password, but you could actually have a couple different people sort of managing like Zaps together and sort of, you know, managing the different API tokens or integrations? Yep, that was the first sort of multiplayer experience that we had. Is that did that just come from customers being like, "Hey, we need this. This is a core part of the feature set we need to have." Yeah, it very much was a sort of customer-driven, you know, product expansion where it was like, "Yep, we can deliver on this promise to folks." And now it looks like even your base plan that's free sort of has a up to 2 users, so like it's every plan has, you know, a tiny team at least, a team of 2. Yeah. And we started to see that be more common. But, you know, when you look at the lower plans, it's not uncommon for 
it to be like an entrepreneur who has an assistant that is helping them with some of this stuff. And so, Mm. you know, a lot of that, when you look at how the user plans are designed today, it's just figuring out like, what are the right pricing and packaging modes that in the right mix of features that sort of meet them where they're at, at price points that are good value for them. Yeah. It's funny. The, uh, the value concept is like, you even acknowledge like, you know, you're going to pay a hundred times more for this if you're looking for, you know, X, Y, and Z different, you know, responses or handholding. And so you're like, we really focus on providing as much value, even though we acknowledge that we might not be able to give you, you know, every single thing you're looking for. And so that ability to say no, sometimes probably a, a really important, you know, part of the business strategy, as well as like, just one of the constraints you put on yourself where you're like, look, this is the kind of business we want to run. Yeah. And, you know, I think, this is one of those things we learned from Atlassian is in doing so, I think you build trust with your customers because what happens is you say, this is what the product offering looks like. We are going to give you our best value product and you can trust that this is the best deal. Nobody else in our product base has sort of negotiated some secret, you know, handshake deal behind the scenes. You, you know, if you would have engaged us in a different way, you wouldn't have gotten a better deal. Mm. We poured all of our effort into making sure that the list price is the best deal for you. And also, you know, this is reflected in sort of the end-to-end experience. So when you go look at things like our terms of service, we're not taking approach of, hey, let's start with the most company-friendly terms of service. And, you know, as a customer, if you want to, you know, have different terms of service, like, well, great, you can come in and negotiate with us and negotiate it down to, you know, something that's a little more friendly to you, but you're going to pay an arm and a leg for it. And then plus, we're going to have to deal with this lengthy sales process. And there's going to be all this back and forth. And then finally, we're going to get to get started with the software. Instead, what we say is, you know what, we're going to set our terms of service in a way that is sort of fair to both of us. You know, we're going to have a lot of mutual statements, and we're going to make sure you're protected and we're protected. And, you know, we'll take on a little bit more risk in certain areas. If it means that, you can just look at those things and go, you know what, that's fair. I appreciate that. And so it just, that approach to selling just drives speed through the entire process and gets rid of all this stuff that really prevents folks from doing the thing that they've already decided they wanted to do. And that's how you see, you know, when you think about how most software is bought these days, even in modern enterprises, before the the customer knocks on your door, they're already like 90% of the way there. Mm -hmm. Like they are already know they've, They've already checked with colleagues to know, oh, this is the product we could use. They've already signed up for their free plan. They've already tried it. They've already sort of built out these little proof of concepts. So they know they want to use you. All this other stuff just gets in the way. And so if you can just be there to be more consultative, to be more assistive, to really make sure that that experience is great, you drive speed through the process and you get happier customers at the other side. At least that's been our experience. No, that makes sense. You know, it is definitely a somewhat, well, clearly counter to the top-down enterprise sales motion that, you know, a lot of folks are, are very familiar with. Oh, 100%. Mm-hmm. I, I still see, like, clear opportunity to sort of work even more closely with those large enterprises just because, like, the opportunity for them to really leverage something like Zapier across their organization is probably so mammoth that it's worth, you know, millions or tens of millions of dollars. I mean, these, you know, like the way that, you know, Salesforce is able to charge these huge licenses to companies, it's because the value to your point is orders of magnitude more and they know this is the best route for them to go. 
and there's probably a similar path there. And you kind of mentioned Atlassian. And one thing that you see, if you look at Atlassian's journey, it was one of like kind of continuously increasing price as they increase value to larger and larger companies, right? And still like providing very similar value to the rest of the customers, but like finding that enterprise motion, I think really allowed them to open up, you know, a massive business as a publicly traded company. Yeah. Hundred percent, and you know, I think one of the things they did well is they earned that over time. You know, they didn't come in and say, "Okay, well, we're just raising prices on you," right? But we don't have anything else to show for it. They they earned that. They put the effort in to make sure to expand their product offerings, to deepen the services they provide in such a way that, as a user, you could go, "Okay, that's a good exchange of value." Like, I'm still with you. Yeah, well, I guess kind of going back to company building really quickly. Like, when did you start to bring in? other executives and other people to kind of help you run the business, right? Because this is three co-founders, you know, who are kind of don't have a ton of experience building software companies. You know, you've kind of worked at a couple, but when did you start to bring in some of these execs who had been there before and kind of help you take some of those next steps? Yeah. You know, I think we were actually probably a little late Mm. on this. You know, I think this is one of those areas where we would have probably been useful for us to bring in folks a little earlier. You know, we brought our first sort of, I guess, true exec in in 2016, our CFO joined at that point in time. And, Mm. um, you know, she took over, you know, finance and um, the people org and really just a lot of administrative stuff that takes to run a company. And that was like a huge, (laughs) huge lever point for me because I was doing a lot of that work with, you know, some contractors and part-time folks, which, you know, was going okay, but I was quickly finding myself spending way, way, way more time on doing that. So 2016 was the first one. And then, you know, I think the first real wave of executives came even later in 2018 when we sort of brought in a, you know, someone to run support and someone to run marketing and uh, someone to run engineering. And um, that was one of those things that like, I think in hindsight, because we sort of had had the success that we'd had running it on our own and we'd figured it out on our own, we were sort of like, yeah, you know what? These, these like folks are going to be, expensive to hire? Are they really going to like roll their sleeves up and work? Are they just going to want to sort of lean back and, you know, boss people around? And, you know, I think we're just wrong. Like, I think we're sort of just naive in that viewpoint because, you know, if you find someone that truly is great, like they're able to bring a ton of experience, great strategic thinking, but they're also able to get in there and roll their sleeves up and coach others around them and um, really just grow the business. And so, yeah, it can be hard to find those folks, but they're definitely out there. Uh, and there's a lot of them. And there's even more of them these days as building these types of software companies has gotten even more common. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, so having that sort of experience in hindsight is like, you know, we shouldn't have dismissed that so easily. Yeah, I, I feel the same way about like, you know, we basically ran our company without any execs for five years. And when we finally brought in, you know, a couple of great execs, the, the thing that did for me is just, it took the pressure off having to think about and manage every part of the business mm-hmm. and sort of create work for every part of the business. Whereas like when you have great execs, it just allowed me to breathe deeper and kind of step back and be like, I can trust this person will solve that problem. And I don't have to lay in bed thinking about it every night. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the biggest value that I, you know, I mean, obviously you know, it's great to have partners and folks in, but like that personal relief was so valuable for me. And I was like, oh, I wish I would have done this earlier. Yeah, 100%. And you know, one of the other things that sort of, again, I mentioned earlier in terms of being somewhat prescient about this is being remote, right? And kind of work from home. And so 
you know, talk about sort of the like how that's working. What what have you learned? You know, I think one of the most important things that we've done is we've actually hired a couple of really great folks from GitLab, and we've adopted several of their best practices, and it's been super helpful. So, like, what are some of the best practices that you've implemented? You know, like what's really helped your culture? What's helped your team be effective? What are you doing that you think as more and more companies really you know focus on being remote first or remote only that they should be doing as well? A few things I think have helped us out a lot. And I'll be frank, like some things that we're still learning how to do. There's not a huge body of knowledge around how to build companies these ways. And so, you know, a decent amount, you you do just kind of figure out through trial and error. Uh, And sometimes that's more error than you wish you had. But, But I think a few sort of core principles. First is in a remote organization, you don't get access to this sort of like hack that you do when you're in an office. And the hack in an office is you can just go over and talk to a person. Just be like, Hey, I'm, I'm confused. Like, what do I need to do about X, Y, Z? And you tap them on a shoulder and you just clear it up right away. So because you don't get that, what that means is you need to be clear about your operating models from the get-go. And so that means you're writing these things down, you're putting these systems and processes in place, and you're building some of these core principles that enable folks to sort of plug in and operate in these ways without a lot of guidance. These are things that companies and offices have to do too, but they usually can get away with doing them until much later. And so remote companies, I think, the pressure is just to do them earlier, which there is a cost associated with that, but it's a cost you have to pay anyway. So do you want to pay it early? Do you want to pay it later? Like, how do you want to go about it? The good news is like, it creates a lot of discipline and structure in the organization that has, I think, more positives than negatives. And so that would be one thing is like, just get really good at defining those and and working through those over time. That's one massive benefit. Um, The sort of con of working in a distributed model is camaraderie is a lot harder uh, and you have to work at it a lot more Um, in an office you know sometimes you can get that kind of for free i mean you should still be thinking about it because you don't want your like culture and camaraderie and all that stuff to be kind of an accident but Mm -hmm. you know you get more opportunities and it's a little more forgiving i think of an environment whereas in in a distributed org you really have to go think about it you know you're gonna have folks that only interact with the company through Slack or Zoom. And even still, like they kind of have, you have to be really thoughtful about inviting people in and making sure you're creating space for those voices to be heard and making sure that people really do feel like they're a part of the mission and a part of the journey and like a welcome part of the experience. Because without that, remote work can feel very transactional. It can feel like, well, you hired me to do the job. I showed up, I did the job. And then I shut the laptop lid at the end of the day, or maybe I didn't, maybe like my Slack just keeps pinging me all hours of the day, or, and I have to be on zoom meetings all hours of the day. And I just sort of feel like now I'm a bit of a robot in this machinery. And a big part of that is because you don't get what you get in an office, which is those little like moments to breathe where, you know, you sit in a cafeteria and you just get to shoot the breeze with your colleagues or you go on a walk to get some coffee, you know, at three o'clock in the afternoon to have a little bit of a pick me up. Like those little moments are just not designed in remote by default. And so remote companies also have to be really thoughtful about how they instrument their culture and implement camaraderie into the organization such that the folks you're bringing in 
feel like they're a part of that journey. And so the key places to pay attention to are your onboarding experiences, you know, just making sure that that's baked in from the get go. Mm -hmm. And then what are the rituals that you have as, as part of a company? Like, how do you do this? What do you do daily? What do you do weekly? What do you do monthly that, that includes folks? And it has to go above and beyond the operations of the company. You know, it can't just be like, you know, did you hit your numbers this week? Did you do X, Y, Z? It has to be more about the human stuff. Like, how's your family? Like, what do you do this weekend? What are your interests? And like really connecting with a person sort of outside the confines of, of work. Uh, and that I think is something that is harder in a remote organization. You just have to design it better and you have to think about it a lot. And I mean, right now, how many employees is that here? We're at about 500. Wow. Okay. So, you know, how are you doing? Like, what are your rituals that scale? What's, what's driving camaraderie at that kind of scale? Yeah, uh, we're missing one big one right now, which is actually a in-person event. So sure. uh, we've had these in-person events, you know, usually twice a year and then some smaller ones throughout the year. And those are definitely historically big sort of like keystone moments for us to mm. build camaraderie and build those connections. And they're, they're kind of just like a jet fuel for getting people to sort of feel what it means to be inside of Zapier. And I wish I could give a more concrete word to it. But feel is really the sort of best way I can describe it. Sure. Um, but beyond that, you know, I think there's a few things. One is that onboarding process. So that happens every two weeks. We have a cohort of folks that start and they start together. Mm. And what that does is it actually creates a group that goes through the same experience right away. And so they have that small community on day one. And those bonds remain through their journey inside of Zapier. You see folks who still continue to connect with those folks they onboarded with, even if they're on totally different teams inside the organization, many, many years after the fact. Um, and that's just because that first entry point is such a shared moment for them that they're able to like start there. And so I think that's one key ritual that we've had that's really important. I love that. That's, that's great. Yeah. Is that like a multi-day onboarding a single day just a morning what's the first week is like mostly the company the lnd team owns the onboarding experience and so you know if you're a leader and you're sort of like hey when do i get you know when does that engineer start on my team or when does the you know marketer start on my team it's not on the first week generally it's like hey look you can have an intro call and you can mm. you know you have some time for a few things but by and large they're not actually starting their sort of core job really until the second week. And even in the second week, it's more like half and half. And that third week is really where it's sort of all into the, like the core thing you're hired for. Oh, interesting. And are, are you onboarding people into their role at all during that first week? Or is it like more, that's like total general onboarding? Yeah, mostly company specific onboarding. Hmm. And this is something that we sort of shifted over time. You know, I think in yeah. the very early days of Zapier, it was very much like, hey, we want you to ship code on the first day. Like we want you to deliver value to the customers on the first day, which I can, honestly, like I think is great. Like that's a really sort of action oriented mindset. It sort of sets the standard that like, this is a place that gets work done. Yeah. And so I think it's really powerful. We've come to find that the opposite is better for us though, which is that really having the broader context of What's the mission? What's the strategy? How do you interact with people? What's the etiquette in Slack? What's the etiquette in Zoom? Being able to just sort of clarify and set expectations around all those things means that when they actually get into their job, they're usually way more effective versus if we didn't do that, like 
the experience had just a lot more variance. Um, you know, there would be obviously people who would kill it without that kind of stuff, but there would be a lot more folks who just sort of got left behind. Mm. And as a result, like we've had more success in onboarding folks as part of cohorts. And have you talked much about this publicly in terms of like, you know, some blog posts or other interviews where some of like your insight around how to onboard is, is available? Uh, I think it's in a remote book. Um, there, I think there's a chapter on it. So if you go to zapper.com slash learn slash remote hyphen work, uh, I think you can check it out. And I'm pretty sure um, one or two of our people have done some podcasts on like how they went about designing it and you know some of the lessons learned in the evolution of our onboarding process. Yeah. I mean, it's super relevant for us personally, like right where we are right now, we're just, you know, in the last year, we've probably added 40 or 50 people, you know, and so we're looking to, you know, double the company again to get to, you know, 180, 160 in the next like nine months to a year. So it's super relevant. We've been thinking about it. So it's a really interesting insight in terms of batching folks together to create camaraderie, to focus on the company onboarding before you really get into, because right, you know, today we're like kind of make a fix in production or do something interesting, right? Like it's about action. And so it's, it'd be really interesting to see like what an agenda would look like for that. So, you know, that you can onboard employees successfully and give them the context they need to then know what they're doing and who they're doing it with. So it's cool. So yeah, that was kind of like ritual number one, you know, the other rituals that I think have worked well for us, um, this one I think is scaled okay, um, really good in the early days, and um, you know I'm not sure how consistent we've been as of late, but it certainly was pretty valuable, and I think it could continue scaling if we put a little more work into it. We had this concept of Friday updates, which is every week at the end of the week, someone you just publish to the company like, hey, here's kind of the top thing I was working on this week, and here's what I got done, and here's what's up next for next week. But the piece that was really important from a culture building perspective is the third part, which was unplugged. And it's, Hey, here's what I'm doing outside of work. Mm. And you know, oftentimes people would like post pictures of their family or their friends or like out doing something fun. And you know, the comment section would always have people like engaging and talking about those types of things and uh, became just, you know, good ways to sort of do get to know you stuff. So that was one. Second thing we do, like Slack has this bot called donut. Sure. Pair you up with random folks. Um, I think a lot of people are doing this these days. Yeah. It's popular. I recommend it. It's good to like do a call with somebody in your company that's no agenda, just chat and get to know somebody. Um, really useful for forming bonds across the org. And in fact, I even think Donut does this cool algorithmic thing where they f- try and like figure out the distance between people and they try and map you up with folks who are technically like more distant in the org chart somehow. Oh, interesting. And I think they're doing some like Slack data analysis to sort of figure that out. Uh, so I think it gets better and better over time is the, the more your, your org does it. So that's a good one. And then there's like informal things, you know, we have a bunch of off topic channels inside of Slack. You know, I think a lot of orgs try and put a stop to, you know, sort of non work chatter. And, and we don't really do that. You know, we have all these channels are prefixed with fun. So you can sort of spot them very quickly mm. and you can decide if you want to join. So there's, you know, fun sports or fun movies or fun music or fun games or fun gardening or fun DIY or, you know, it's just sort of whatever the collective hive mind of the company is interested in. There's channels around all these sorts of things and it allows people to sort of self-organize based on interests. And, you know, most of these channels are like, pretty quiet. You know, people don't go just hang out in these channels all day long and not do work. 
but they end up being like just nice little spots to discuss things. Um, you know, so, you know, for me, like I am kind of like a, you know, Marvel cinematic universe fan and like all the movies and TV shows. And so there's a channel that's around that. And so, you know, when Loki's airing and like the latest episodes out, I'm like, jump in there and say like, Oh, I love this thing. That was great. Uh, it's, you know, it's fun. And it's just a good way to like get to know people who share interests with you inside the company. And then you find yourself working with them on a project and like, Oh, I kind of know this person already. And like, I, you know, this is another human. And I think these like little rituals and habits that just humanize each other mm-hmm. are really, really important in remote work. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, and even that, like, you know, we have these off topic channels as well. And it's like, I think the idea of just prefixing them with fun is such a good idea because like that way you can find them. It makes them discoverable. It makes it like, it's a, it's a really great idea. I love that. Yeah. I mean, naming conventions for Slack channels is like one of my top Slack tips is, especially as you get bigger, is just come up with like some prefixes that help people do some wayfinding inside of Slack because you're going to have so many channels and new folks are going to go, where do I go for what? And so having some of these yeah, just simple things. What are your other naming conventions? What else do you have? Um, so we've got uh, city is another one. So that's like location. So if you're in the same mm. city as somebody, which is nice, because if you want to like do a little lunch or coffee or sure. um, something like that, those are great. Obviously, they've been underused in the last year or so, but they're starting to get used more and more with the vaccines um, rollout uh, going well. There's a bunch of uh, feeds. So F-E-E-D. And these are mostly bots uh-huh. posting information and alerts. So you might have like, you know, feed signup tracker, which is like, Hey, how, what's the sign daily signups look like, or feed, you know, customer issues, which is like, Hey, a feed of something coming in from our ticketing system or feed like uptime alerts, which is like, you know, funneling those stuff in. So, you know, these are a lot of just like, mostly humans aren't in these are not like talking in those channels, but they're just paying attention to them. So you can just see like information coming in. So those are really useful. We've got uh, teams like team prefix is pretty useful. And so those tend to be like the home base of a, a particular team where they'll chat about stuff. We have WG, which stands for working group. And these are usually sort of moment in times where like a sort of ragtag group of folks will come together and solve a particular problem and then, you know, disband at the end of it. So that's not too uncommon. Um, yeah. I mean, those are the, the sort of main ones that, that come to mind. Yeah. That's super helpful. It's probably a thing we should, you know, like have our people team look into is like how to actually best organize and, and structure Slack because we are, we all do spend so much time in there. So that's a great idea. Yeah. And then the other thing that I, I was listening to podcasts and I heard you guys talk about was async. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So is that still something you use a lot or what? Yeah. So async is where all the Friday updates get logged in. Um, okay. But it acts as like probably the best way to describe it is public email, but it's on a, website instead of actually an email. So, Mm. you know, if I'm making an announcement to the company, I'll write it up in async and post it there. And then people can comment on it. There's a transcript log. And it has some like Reddit-like type features where um, there's a master homepage where this is sort of like across the whole company. These are the sort of top most interacted with things that are getting published in a given week. But then there's also a personal homepage, which is more relevant to your specific interests. So, you know, I have a link I can go to and it, you know, tends to be, you know, my direct report. So it'll be like the exact team that I see all their publications and then maybe some other things that I tend to interact with more. And so it does some smart things to like try and surface information that's in my sphere 
there's also an inbox, which, you know, when you write these posts, you can like an email, you can put a to and say like, Hey, this is, I wrote this with you in mind. Mm. And so the inbox will surface things where that people are like, Hey, I, I specifically would like you to read this because I think it's for you in mind. So you have these different views on it that allow you to just kind of get a better perspective of what's going on across the company. It tends to be a little more longer form, just more information dense, whereas Slack is a lot more like reaction type stuff. Async is a little sort of more thoughtful, like pieces of work that go into it. Uh, and so that's kind of how that works for us. Uh, so yeah, big company announcements, like launches. We have like a, a logs channel, which is like change logs, results logs, uh, bet logs, research logs. And it's just sort of people logging like summaries of work that have happened. Metrics reviews go on there. So like big, like, hey, this is so what happened in our team and, or in this part of the business over the last month. So it ends up being like a pretty high signal, low noise environment compared to Slack, which can have a ton of noise and you have to sift for the good stuff. Yeah, I love that idea of sort of having, being able to like even see the most interacted sort of, you know, with posts kind of things. That way you can know when you join a company, you can kind of look over like the brief history of like, well, what's been really important here in the last few years and what's, yeah. and then you can look chronologically like that, that idea of sort of being able to surface. Cause I think about for us would be across, you know, email and Google docs and Slack. And it's just, there's not like a consistent place to find all of that. So that's really kind of an elegant solution to that problem. It's sort of the, the things that you would stand up and like tell everybody, you know, like in the office, we, you know, we did this or like you give some talk during all hands, a way to like, you know, kind of, materialize that. That's cool. Yeah. It's working well for us. And, and I know we don't have a ton of time left, but I'd love to get your thoughts on, in, you know, you mentioned in the last probably four, three or four years, this category has emerged around like low code, no code. How do you see yourselves in that category? How do you see this category evolving? You know, what is the sort of like future of sort of how software is developed and how does this play into it? Yeah. You know, I think it's, we're still defining it, um, a, a lot of us, uh, but I think it kind of is sort of a natural evolution of making things. Uh, you know, I think if you sort of rewind the clock a decade and you look at like the emergence of things like WordPress, you know, WordPress is a um, phenomenal invention that allowed just sort of a normal person to make a website. And it's like, hey, you got a website now and that's great. You can put something on the internet. Now, like no code, you can go even further than just a website. You can be saying, hey, I'm building full-on applications. I'm filling mobile experiences, um, internal tools, or really core workflows, or things that feel like they have logic associated with them are now capable of being built by normal mm -hmm. people, too. It's not this power that only an engineer has. Uh, and you know, Zapier, I think, has definitely played an important role in this, particularly in that logic layer, where we're allowing folks to move data between, you know, front end and back end uh, type experiences and manipulate it and make sure to get it to the right place at the moment that it needs to be. And it, it ends up being the glue in the stack that folks are trying to assemble for a lot of these types of tools. And so uh, when folks are sort of learning how to build things in this sort of style of no code building, Zapier is often a sort of critical infrastructure piece um, that becomes a part of their, mm -hmm. their stack. Um, it's been fun to watch this ecosystem sort of blossom and emerge. You know, you, I, I think it's just such an important thing because you've seen so many stories of folks who've had an idea or, you know, have a problem that they want to solve. And they've always just not had 
quite the skill set to really unlock it. And so when they are able to adopt these tools and build these things, you know, you can just see their eyes light up and you can see how important it is to them. And then you can also see the impact that they're having uh, in the types of businesses that they're building, the types of experiences that they're building. And you just realize being able to unlock the potential of these folks is important for them as a person, but it's also important for us as a society because we're able to tap into the collective knowledge of just more people. Uh, And so I, I suspect this space will continue to be a really important space for things to get built because it just means that we're able to get more out of more people. Yeah. More participation sort of particularly as more folks come online, more folks have insight. There's a lot of really smart people who can start to contribute. And, you know, we all sort of stand on the shoulders of the folks who came before us. So the more impact those folks can continue to have, the higher we can continue to strive across the board. So I love that. Yep. hundred percent. Cool. Wade. Thank you so much for joining. This was amazing. I really appreciate you uh, allowing me to pepper you with questions about random topics and other things that I'm that I'm interested in. So I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Grant. This was fun. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to the largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.